Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Jermaine Kidd, and I have the honor of serving as the president of the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association. Thank you all for joining us today. We have a phenomenal program in store for you. This is the first program of our Insight series. And the purpose of the, of the Insight series is to offer Insight perspectives and hear from judges, practitioners, and other members of the legal community on a range of legal topics, issues, and practice areas. And I'm, I'm excited that the first program of the series features our distinguished panel of superior court judges. We have Judge Friesen, Judge Crump, Judge Oman, and Judge Yuseyan. And we appreciate the judges for their support of the MBLA and for offering to share their perspectives and insights today. I also want to express our appreciation to the Boston Bar Association for their support in allowing us to use their virtual platform. And a special recognition to Solana Goss, Shanae Vines, and Daniel Tillman for all of their help in making today's program possible. I also wanna thank our, our today, uh, excuse me, today's moderators, Carla Jackson and Laura Martin, who also serve as committee members on the MBLA's Programs and Professional Development Committee. This is a prime example of, if you're someone who's interested in serving on, in serving on one of our committees, you will have an opportunity to get involved right away and have a hands-on role with the MBLA. And to get us started on today's program, I have the pleasure of introducing Tiffany Ellis Niles, who serves as the Executive Vice President of the MBLA and co-chair of the Programs and Professional Development Committee. And I also want to acknowledge her co-chair, Michael Kippens, also board member, who unfortunately is unable to join us today. I appreciate their hard work and leadership on this committee. Tiffany Ellis Niles is a founding partner of Lyles and Niles LLP, a general practice law firm on the South Shore. Tiffany focuses her practice on bankruptcy, domestic relations, and landlord-tenant disputes. Tiffany also has extensive experience representing clients in family law, real estate transactions, estate planning, small claims, and contract matters. Tiffany is certified with the Committee of Public Counsel, Family and Children Division, and represents children and parents involved with the Department of Children and Families. Tiffany is a graduate of UMass Boston, where she received her Bachelor of Science, and also a graduate of Suffolk University Law School. And I just wanna say that I am excited and grateful to have Tiffany serving on the MBLA board. And I appreciate her leadership on this program and her service to the MBLA over the years. With that said, Tiffany, I'll let you take it from here. Thank you. Thank you, Jermaine. I appreciate that um, introduction and welcome and good um, evening to everyone um, present today. 
Um, thank you guys for joining us. And before I go ahead and introduce our uh, moderators, I just wanted to um, give you all just a um, just um, some information about the flow of this um, event this evening. I know we're still virtual. Um, we hope to, you know, have a part two of this event um, sometime after the winter break, where we can, you know, come together in person. But we'll see where that where that takes us. So this evening. Um, after I introduce the moderators, we're gonna go and have an open discussion um, led by them. And then we're going to break out in two um, separate um, breakout rooms where you'll get to hear um, more privately or intimately in a smaller group with two of the panelists at a time. And that will run for about um, 20, 15 to 20 minutes. And then we will have the panelists switch. So everyone gets an opportunity to have this um, small discussion with all um, four panelists, just in two different sessions. Um, so when you're in the private, I'm sorry, in the breakout rooms, we just want you to know that um, you can utilize the chat if you wanna ask the questions and the moderator will um, monitor that as best they can. Or since we're gonna be in a smaller setting, you can go ahead and um, take yourself off of mute and ask your question um, that way. We also just wanna encourage you all, um, if you can, to keep your cameras on while we're having this discussion. Cause again, we just want it to be um, a little intimate and we wanna be able to you know, have a discussion and see all of your happy faces. So that is encouraged if you can keep your cameras on. So not to um, prolong anything, I wanna go ahead and introduce our moderators. First, we have Laura Martin, who is a litigation associate at Mintz. And as um, President Kidd said, she's also a member of the MBLA and she's a member of the Programs and Professional Development Committee. And in her practice, she um, works on government investigations, enforcement proceedings with white collar criminal defense and complex litigation matters for clients in a wide variety of industries, including sports and entertainment, education, healthcare, and financial services. In addition, Laura maintains an active pro bono practice in which she counsels and represents clients in matters related to unemployment benefits, evictions, immigration, and sealing criminal records. So thank you, Laura, for volunteering to be a moderator this evening. We also have Carla Jackson, who's also a member of the MBLA and the Professional Development Committee. She's a family law attorney and a certified divorce mediator with years of experience preparing agreements, motions, and memos. In addition to family law, Carla has volunteered as a jail support on behalf of the National Lawyers Guild and Massachusetts Bail Fund and Corey pro bono work for the Lawyers Clearinghouse. Prior to joining the bar, Carla worked in media relations advocating for marginalized communities in the healthcare industry. So thank you both for leading us in our discussion this evening. Thank you, Tiffany. I am happy to be here this evening and I'm so happy to see all of you here with us as well. I have the honor of announcing, excuse me, of sharing the bio of Judge Shannon Bryson first this evening. Judge Shannon Bryson was appointed to the Massachusetts Superior Court in March of 2013 at the age of 42. She is the youngest judge on that court. Prior to her current position, Judge Bryson served for nearly three years on the Boston Municipal Court. Before her appointment, she spent nearly seven years as a litigation associate at the former white collar defense firm Dwyer and Colora in Boston prior to opening her own firm. 
She has tried several high profile murder, rape, and conspiracy cases in the Boston area and in military courts of North Carolina, Florida, and Japan. Judge Fryson is a jurist, a major in the United States Marine Corps, and a mentor to new trial lawyers. She earned her bachelor's degree in government from Harvard and Radc Radcliffe Colleges and her law degree from Georgetown University Law Center. So thank you for joining us this evening. We also have Judge Peter Krupp. Judge Peter Krupp has served on the Superior Court for over eight years since his appointment by Governor Deval Patrick in early 2013. He has been a member of the Superior Court's Rules Committee and the Model Jury Instructions Committee, and has also co-chaired the Superior Court's Race and Implicit Bias Committee. He is currently a member of Harvard Kennedy School Roundtable on Racial Disparities in the Massachusetts Courts. Before his appointment to the bench, his practice for 26 years was a mix of commercial litigation and criminal defense at a big firm, as a public defender, and also in a small firm. When practicing as an attorney, Judge Krupp represented indigent criminal defendants in federal court and represented individuals charged with murder in the Superior Court. He is a graduate of Brown University and the University of Chicago Law School. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks, Laura. Tonight, I have the pleasure of introducing the Honorable Rafi Yassan. He is an Associate Justice of the Superior Court and a graduate of New England School of Law. He was nominated to the bench in September 2014 by then Governor Deval Patrick and was subsequently appointed. Prior to joining the bench, Judge Yusayan served as Assistant District Attorney in the Suffolk County DA's office for 12 years, where he prosecuted violent felonies, drug trafficking offenses, illegal firearm possessions, and juvenile offenses. In 2002, while working for the Suffolk DA's office, Judge Yusayan became chief of the gang unit. In 2007, he opened his private practices in New Bedford and Quincy, where he focused predominantly on criminal defense and immigration law. And as a bar advocate, he worked with both indigent and court-appointed clients. Judge Sayan is the past recipient of the Quincy Bar Association Public Service Award and previously was appointed by the Massachusetts House of Representatives to serve on their gun advisory group. Judge Zayan currently serves as the Regional Administrative Justice for Bristol County. Please welcome Judge Zayan, everyone. And my apology. And our fourth and final panelist this evening is Judge Robert Ullman. He is a graduate of Suffolk Law School, uh, excuse me, Harvard's Law School, excuse me. He was nominated to the bench by then acting Governor Deval Patrick in 2013. Judge Ullman currently serves as regional administrative judge for Suffolk County Criminal Matters. Prior to becoming a judge, he was a partner at Nutter, McLennan and Fish for 18 years, handling a broad range of criminal and civil trials and serving as a member of the firm's executive committee and the first chair of its diversity committee. 
From 1985 to 1995, he was a federal prosecutor, including service as the first assistant U.S. attorney and chief of the criminal division in the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office. Judge Ullman currently teaches criminal procedure at Boston College Law School and chairs the SJC's Grand Jury Committee. Please welcome Judge Ullman. Thank you all for being here tonight. Um, if you can, can you each share your personal path to the bench? You know, what, for example, what are some of the challenges you may have faced? You know, did you have or what was your aha moments throughout the process? I'll go first, I guess, um, as Judge is saying. Um, so I don't know about an, an aha moment, but I, um, I guess I, I never necessarily thought that I would, well, in high school, I never would have thought that I would become a lawyer. Let's forget about being a judge. Um, but um, just, it, it was, it's, and it's nice to see uh, that I have a fellow UMass Boston alum here in Tiffany. Um, so, uh, you know, when I was in, in college, I really, I was uh, playing football at UMass Boston, uh, kind of learning my way around. And I, uh, I ran into a friend who had an, uh, a cousin who was a lawyer, and I suddenly became pre-law with uh, a history and philosophy major. And uh, I thought I was going to go to law school and, and go into like real estate development. And then when I went to law school, I, I took... Um, I did the clinic with CPCS representing indigent uh, clients. And uh, that, was, that was it. I really fell in love with the criminal law. And from there, I ended, up, I ended up going to the DA's office and I was there for a number of years, um, uh, eventually going onto the gang unit and to, to lead the gang unit. But part of what we did in the gang unit, we always wanted to um, do outreach. You know, a lot of the times we were prosecuting young inner city kids, you know, and we wanted to try to develop ways to, to steer those kids in the right direction towards making better decisions so they wouldn't end up in, in court, whether it be juvenile court, district court, and then ultimately superior court. Uh, so we try to get involved in those programs and, and create different programs for those young people. Um, and then when I, I, we, you know, one of the things we developed was a, a film and curriculum to try to keep kids out of gangs. And I kept doing that throughout the years, even when I became a defense attorney. Um, uh, and I started my own practice doing criminal defense and immigration. But, um, you know, uh, and, and I tried cases along the way, and it's important to get into court and try cases, I think, for everybody, um, in, 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 if you want to become a judge and, and to, to, to follow that path, uh, you've certainly got to be in the courtroom and trying cases. But it was all that other stuff that I did, you know, that outreach uh, to, to try to, to, to keep kids on the right track or get kids on the right track or, or help kids that have been in trouble, especially as a defense attorney, it really, you're working one-on-one -on -one with those kids to try to get them on the right track. Um, it was all that work that I think benefited when, benefited me when I applied uh, uh, for the judgeship. It, it was those things that, that I think set me apart from a lot of other people. So uh, I think that's something that people should think about in addition to doing your lawyer work to do outreach other than, you know, coaching your kids pop Warner or basketball or hockey team. I mean, everybody likes doing that kind of stuff, 
but it, it's it's those other things that you can get involved in um, that I think are not only are they rewarding to you individually, and they really were rewarding to me. Um, ultimately, it was those things that I think um, helped me in 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 in, uh, in getting to this position where I am now. So uh, I would encourage people to to get involved in 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 as many things as you can um, that are that are different, where you're you're helping others and trying to make a difference, um, as well as you know trying cases and, and and doing that 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 part of it, and also just make sure you always treat people well, everybody. Um, it, it's it's nice to be nice. I think somebody, I think uh, that might be Magic Johnson that said that, but it's, it's nice to be nice. So um, I, I guess that's all I've got for now. Certainly uh, I can answer some questions later after we hear from the other judges. not going to put anybody on the spot but if i see you i'm gonna ask you to share <laughs> judge Ullman, i can see you from my camera can you share your path and what it was like to the bench sure sure so i, I see trial judge as my third career in the legal system i was my first career was as a prosecutor uh, for a little more than 10 years uh, and on the plus side of the ledger i got into court a lot uh, I don't think there are any trial lawyers who don't make a lot of mistakes, so I was able to make those mistakes and learn from my mistakes. I will say on the negative side of the ledger, ledger I, I did a couple of high profile cases, and I think it's part of the territory that when you do those, not everybody is thrilled with the outcome, and that, that, that led to a couple of challenges in the judicial application process. But that comes with the uh, territory. And my second career was uh, as a lawyer at Nutter, McLennan and Fish. I was there 18 years. Uh, if you are doing the math, you are seeing this is not the quick glideway to the job of trial judge. <laughs> it's not the Judge Friesen uh, path, but uh, I enjoyed the work uh, uh, a lot. I did a lot of trial work, both for paying clients and a lot of pro bono a trial work, um, mostly in federal court, uh, a little in superior court. Uh, and I think that uh, because of that, having done a lot on both the prosecution and, and the defense side, I think I had uh, gained at least some uh, credibility uh, when I applied. So uh, I would say that I, I personally think the most important way to become a judge is through sustained uh, performance uh, as a lawyer. Uh, but I also agree with Judge Yassane that you, you sort of have to be out there uh, in the community and involved in activities where, where you meet people, you, you make a positive impression on people, people come to, to trust you. Uh, I think most of us, if not all of us on the bench, uh, know someone or knew someone who had the ear of the governor uh, but it's impossible to know uh, who the governor is going to be 10 or 15 or you know, 20 years from uh, when you start out uh, as a lawyer. So you can't, you, you, you can't really plan it that way. Uh, but what you can do is, you know, is as I say, uh, take the job of a lawyer seriously and, and, and get involved in, in organizations and activities. <clears throat> Thank you. Judge 
Bryson, would you mind sharing your experience? First, I want to know who Judge Ullman had uh, in the ear of the governor, because <laughs> I did not have that. And um, I think I'm jealous of that. But um, I, I am from Chicago, and most of my family is in and from Mississippi. Um, so I really am, am a transplant to, to Massachusetts. I did go to undergrad here, but then left again for, for a good deal of time. So when I left um, Harvard, I went down to DC to Georgetown, both great experiences for school. I chose to join the Marine Corps while I was in law school and everyone thought I was crazy. They probably were right um, in terms of doing it that way and that path. It, 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 it was a lot to do. And it, it, it seemed as though, you know, I was going two different directions, but in my mind, um, they, they made perfect sense together. I was in law school and I knew that I, uh, barring something terrible happening. I was going to be a lawyer at that point. And I also wanted a, a second career in addition to law. At that time, I wanted it to be at least partly physical in nature. And um, I got wind of the judge advocate programs in all branches of the military and specifically in the Marine Corps from a Marine who was at Georgetown. I um, went to officer candidate school in the summer after my second year of law school. So I spent the summer that way and came back uh, this very changed person and, and a Marine. And I was um, commissioned and then dismissed from duty on the same day to finish school. So, during my last year, I was not doing interviewing and trying to get with the big firms. I, are, I knew I was going on to active duty. So that took at least some, some aspect of stress away during law school. I spent my summers in law school teaching tennis. I was a tennis player and I taught um, children and adults. Um, I, I taught children and adults every summer since I was in high school all the way through law school. And when I graduated from Georgetown, I went on to active duty. I went down to North Carolina to Marine Corps Air Station New River and served as uh, the legal assistant office, legal assistance officer for a while in which you're doing sort of individual work for Marines like divorces and separations and wills and uh, all sorts of commercial transactions that uh, Marines get in trouble in. And I spent the rest of the time there prosecuting um, as the only prosecutor on that air station uh, with uh, 15 helicopter squadrons and 15 mini, mini bosses uh, as commanders. I left active duty after that tour of duty down there and came back to Boston where I joined uh, the law firm. It used to be Dwyer and Calora. Then it was Calora at some point after I left and now they've been 
um, eaten up by uh, Hogan Lovells. And that was my main law firm experience. I spent about seven years there and did a lot of trial work, criminal and civil. Criminal has always been my passion, uh, but I did do a lot of civil litigation there as well, particularly employment, uh, plaintiffs, employment law. After seven years there or thereabouts, I went and began my own firm as a private practitioner in Boston and did some work in that capacity alone, uh, focusing still on criminal litigation, employment litigation, and military justice. And in that capacity, I went to a lot of uh, bases and stations representing service members who were being charged with crimes or being um, kicked out uh, administratively. And during that time of working on my own, I applied to the bench. I applied to the Boston Municipal Court. Uh, it, I don't know that there was an aha moment, but I did decide that that's what I wanted to do next. So it was also, uh, like Judge is saying, not something I really thought about before coming on the bench. It's not something I was working towards as I worked. I just did the work that I wanted to do and tried to do it well. I came on, I got appointed by Deval Patrick in 2009 to the BMC. Um, I loved working on the BMC and I worked in all of the divisions there, but Roxbury was my home court. I left um, that court and applied to the Superior Court in 2013 and was appointed again by Deval Patrick uh, to this court. And I've been on this court with judges Omen and Krupp, at least that whole time, I think Judge is saying it's come on. I think he's kind of a baby still on the court. Um, so um, that's that's my path in a nutshell. Thank you. Judge Krupp. All right, I get the bat cleanup. Um, and it's amazing to me that um, uh, being a judge has seems to have seemed to have gone by in a blink of an eye for me. Um, and yet it's been eight and a half years for me. And among these judges, I am the most senior. That's crazy. At least on the Superior Court, Judge Fryson has more years on as a judge because she started at the BMC. Um, but, um, but my path um, also didn't start with any aspiration to become a judge. Um, I started, um, I think, where Laura is at Minslevin. Um, uh, and I was there for about seven years. Um, my advice to anybody who is in that setting is to take every dog case you can possibly get. Every small case where the, it's, it's uh, for the uh, uh, personal uh, uh, matter for the president or the CEO of a company and the, it's too small for the partner to handle and it's too, far, too small for a senior associate to handle and the junior associate gets the case and then you get to do everything in that particular case. You get to make the decisions, you get to go to court, you, so I would urge everybody to take the smallest cases in the office so you can control the case and learn by doing. Um, but anyway, I was there for seven years. Then I went to the Federal Public Defender's Office where I um, uh, obviously tried um, federal criminal cases um, against the likes of um, Judge Ullman, although uh, he and I never tried a case against one another. Um, but uh, we did overlap on opposite sides of the V. And then... Um, uh, I left there to start my own practice, um, 
with a friend of mine and um, we grew a small firm into seven lawyers and you know various support staff and what have you and i practiced there for 16 years and um uh i like judge freison am also a transplant um, what's fascinating to me in hearing the four bios recited here uh, and our paths to the bench is that they are such diverse paths and such um and such different paths. Um, I grew up in Connecticut, went to school outside of, outside of Massachusetts and first came to Massachusetts, well, I guess as a summer associate, but really after graduating from law school, I was not a BC high, BC, you know, college, BC law school type. I didn't go to college here or law school here. And I think um, uh, what I did develop, I think, and what, what stood me in good stead in terms of applying for a judgeship when I ultimately decided that was something I wanted to do as a next challenge, um, was develop a reputation and build that reputation. Um, and um, uh, other judges uh, more wise than I have uh, been asked, what's the most important case you have? And the answer is, or you've ever presided over, and the answer is the next one. And that's true for lawyers too. Um, you are only as good as what you can do for the next client up or the client that you now have that you're working on. And that's how you build a reputation. And that's how you put yourself in good stead in terms of the legal community. Um, outreach is definitely important. And there's so many ways of doing that, like Judge Yusayan described, um, you know, get on a pro bono committee, get on a amicus committee, um, be active in the Mass Black Lawyers Association, whatever you choose to do, um, jump in with both feet and do it, and you'll gradually develop that reputation. And, and I think that that's ultimately what um, is really viewed well um, in uh, moving to other positions, and it, that includes the bench. Thank I'm you. Not, I'm not sure I had the ear of the governor either, had anybody who had the ear of the governor, but maybe there was somebody out there, I don't know. But. Thank you so much. Um, Judge Freisen, can I ask you specifically, can you tell us two or three takeaways um, that, you could, that you could share with us um, for successful practice in Superior Court? For successful practice? Um, I, I think, you know, uh, the tips are good for everyone practicing no matter how long you've been practicing and no matter what level you're at. The main, if it's a tip, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a secret, but the main thing that I think for practice in Superior Court is your preparation. Whether it's a trial or a motion or any other, any other type of hearing where you are on your feet and before the judge, it, it is obvious when you're prepared and when you're not, whether you have submitted papers in advance on some issue or it's only an oral argument, either way, you know, we, it's not lost on us when you're prepared and when you're not. And it is, um, <clears throat> from, from our perspective, it is just more helpful to deciding the matter. We, you know, we don't, we're not, wanting you to be prepared just so that you um, have a great performance, though you do want that. But from our perspective, it's so that you give everything that you can to help me um, 
identify the issues, distinguish um, any cases, be aware of any nuances, and, and, and present a strong argument so that I can take that and um, pit it against the other side and make a decision. So preparation is key, and that's for yourself and for any witnesses that you have. Um, the other thing that I think is really important is something that we've that every, I think every judge on here has said in, in just introducing themselves, which we've talked about reputation and your, your reputation um, within the court. I cannot stress enough how important that is. Uh, we, we could talk all night about that and, and what all forms it takes, but it, within the superior court, you have so many people that you will need to interface with in, in addition to your own clients and opposing counsel. You have the judge, obviously, you have the clerk, you have court officers, you have staff, uh, clerical staff in the um, clerk's office, you may have probation to deal with. Um, there may be a bunch of different people that you interact with in order to do what you're accomplishing, what you're trying to accomplish. And everything that you do from your interaction with the facilities, guy or gal, all the way up to your argument before the judge matters. And it, not, it matters down the road many, many years from now. People who you may not even remember, remember you. And when you're practicing in Superior Court or any other court, half of the battle is your reconnaissance. Um, you, you've got to know the forum, know the, the mores, the, the, the operations of the place, um, the habits and things that usually happen. Everything from what time things usually start to uh, what types of arguments these particular judges will entertain, which of course you're gonna get from observing, you're gonna get from talking to other lawyers, you're gonna get from talking to the clerk. And the most important thing is to do right by the people that you interact with, whether it's the clerk or a court officer or me or whoever at opposing counsel, the DA, it doesn't matter. Everyone in this process and in this industry uh, will get to know who you are and how you are. And how you are is going to not just affect, uh, you know, some years from now when you, when you apply to the bench, it's going to affect your income right now, today, this month, this year, um, how much money you make, how successful you are, what spheres you can move into, and, and how much mobility you have in general in the legal field. So um, being prepared uh, substantively and taking note of how you are interacting with and treating people um, when you are in court and dealing with people who are of the court, I, I, those would be the probably the top two um, tips that I would give. Thank you. Um, for the sake of time, because we have so much to talk about and so little time to do it, and I'm going to stop calling out judges and I'm going to ask overall if anybody has anything to share. Can you tell us 
what advice you would give to inexperienced young attorneys looking to enter the practice? And along the same lines, what are, what are some pet peeves that you see us do that you wish that we would stop doing? I'm opening up the floor to everyone. <laughs> I'll take that one. Um, uh, for, for people who are just starting out, I'd say the number one thing to, to do is to find a mentor. Um, you need to find somebody who's gone there before, who's uh, plowed the ground at some level, who, can, who is a person that you trust, who you can go to with questions. Um, every single person on the bench, I'm sure, had at least one person in their first five years of practice who they could do exactly that with and who helped them grow as people and as lawyers. Um, and um, that's just invaluable. Um, um, and the other thing in terms of a pet peeve, um, at least for me, and this is, um, I would say, um, not something that senior lawyers or seasoned lawyers suffer from as much as younger lawyers is to really know what to fight about. Um, in in um, litigation, you might have the opportunity to present seven arguments, um, but three of them or four of them are around the edges and don't really matter that much and you might not win them. You want to really argue the two or three key points and that's um, that's litigation judgment, that's attorney seasoning, that's um, perspective on what the legal arguments are. It's, a, it's an offshoot of what Judge Freisen was describing as preparation, which when I was thinking about those comments was the first word that I wrote down. Um, but so if you're prepared, you know which arguments to, are most important. But um, that's the key thing I think is to be able to tell a long story in a short amount of time really get to the key points and to the nub of things. I just want to add a, like a little gloss to that, which is sort of combining what Judge Friesen and what Judge Krupp have said, that, that credibility is incredibly important. And part of that is just being honest about your arguments. Uh, we all understand that, that everyone has a client. And yet you are obliged to be a zealous advocate for the client. But there's, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. If you're asking me to do something that no superior court judge has ever done, don't, don't tell me it's a no-brainer. Tell me why I should do something that no other superior court judge has done. Uh, and as I say, we, you know, uh, all of us, well, speaking for myself, I respect a, a good argument. Uh, even if it's a steep uphill battle, but just be, be candid about it. Um, a, a pet peeve for me would be attorneys um, not being respectful to each other. Um, and I know we've talked about uh, court staff and, and things like that, but that really, it really bothers me when attorneys aren't respectful to each other, or if someone tries to pull a fast one, you know, handing something to the other side at the last minute, they've been They've been sitting in the courtroom for two hours together, um, five feet apart. They haven't talked and then they get up in front of me and they, they hand the person something that they're handing me. Uh, not a good move. Um, I, I, that's something that doesn't get past me. I don't know if it gets past anyone. Um, and um, just back to what would I tell a, a young lawyer? Um, you know, get into court. And when you get into court, 
not, not just treat people with respect, talk to people. Like when you, when you walk in there, talk to those court officers, ask them, you know, you know, I think Judge Friesen said, get the lay of the land. That's what you do. You, you talk to the court officers to get the lay of the land. You talk to the clerk, you know, you talk to all the people in the courtroom, use your time wisely. If you're in that courtroom and you're just sitting in the gallery reading to, to you know, you should be already prepared for your argument at that point. Now you should be kind of working the room and, and getting to know people. And when I was in law school, there was a, I forget which attorney it was, but we, he, you know, he said whenever he went to court, he would, he would create a notebook on whatever court he went to. Now it's a lot easier with these phones. You know, you just put in, you know, Fall River Superior Court, and then you put in the judges' names that are there, you put in the different clerks, you put in the court officers, um, and, and you kind of put in like, you know, court officer Smith as a kid that goes to, you know, UMass Boston. Next time I go there, <laughs> strike up and go, hey, how's, how's your son doing? You know, get, you know, when you get into those courts, and I, and I think it may be a little more difficult for uh, those of you uh, that, that focus on civil rather than criminal, uh, because in criminal, you're kind of in court every single day and you might be in the same courts over and over. Uh, but it's the same concept. You know, you've, if you've got a case in one court, you might be in that court over the next couple of years, three or four times. And every time you're going back there, you're seeing those same court officers and those clerks develop a relationship with them. And, you know, back to the point that Judge Ullman made that, you know, we all have someone's ear, the governor's ear. It's not so much that you've got the governor's ear, it's that you're out there and you've got a reputation and the governor is not just gonna pick you without hearing from people about you. The, the governor's gonna ask around to people that do have the governor's ear and ask about you know, Bob Ullman and Shannon Friesen and ask what people think about that person. So everyone, if, if you're out there building a relation, uh, a reputation for yourself, you're gonna have the governor's ear. Um, if you're out there and, and, and building that relationship, uh, that uh, uh, reputation for yourself, so. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, before we move on to breakout rooms, I do wanna discuss or have, hear the judge's opinions about a report that the Supreme Judicial Court Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing released back in February 2021, so earlier this year summarizing the challenging environment underrepresented individuals face when practicing law in Massachusetts. And I'm going to send the link out in the chat. I encourage everybody to read this report. Um, the committee co-chairs released a statement about the report and in it they said, this report is a reality check for those among us who think that all Massachusetts lawyers are treated equally and that our efforts to eliminate systemic bias are working. So my question is twofold. Were you surprised by the results of the climate survey? And what have you seen the judiciary do since the survey was released? I, oh, Judge Krupp, would you like to begin? Sure. Um, uh, surprise, no. Really disappointed, yes. Um, uh, the um, this is um, not something I experience when I walk into the courthouse. Um, it is a reality for um, maybe all, but certainly most 
uh, attorneys of color, and it is it was as a slap in the face to everybody and a um, a wake up call. Um, the the court has taken it, I think, incredibly seriously, um, and has convened committees, has done all kinds of outreach um, to um, uh, bar associations. Um, the Superior Court, which I can speak to, but I think this is true about other courts too. We now have um, a Superior Court judge liaisons to every affinity bar association in the Commonwealth. Um, we um, have tried to do more outreach uh, as judges. Um, and um, we have tried to educate ourselves. So the, the current uh, race and anti bias committee in the Superior Court um, does all kinds of programming uh, just for judges, um, uh, circulates readings, tries to bring people's education up a little bit on issues of uh, uh, racial disparities and the way in which people are treated um, differently. Um, but it is a slow slog. It's not an easy problem to solve. It's not an easy issue to put aside and um, uh, get on top of. So I, I think that there's just tons of work to be done um, in, in this area. Um, you know, I, I tell stories on myself all the time. You know, I, I was presiding over a um, motor vehicle tort case and um, we impaneled the jury and there was a guy, uh, African-American man in the back who was sitting inside a kind of a schlumpy three-piece suit. And after we impaneled the jury, the plaintiff's attorney said he wants to call his first witness and he calls the person in the schlumpy three-piece suit and he gets on the witness stand and um, uh, this is the defendant. And um, I'm sitting as the judge and the, um, he says, state your name. He states his name. What do you do for work? Um, I'm the principal of a major high school in the greater Boston area. And I took myself aback. Um, I had a reaction myself personally, which was really, wow, what a cool job. What did I think this person did? You know, what was I thinking about this person as he was sitting in the back of my courtroom? And um, uh, that was a reality check for me. And, and, and I, I have these kinds of issues for myself, as much as I've been thinking about these issues um, for many, many years, um, I couldn't stop myself from having that kind of a reaction. And, and I think that that's what we are up against. That's what I'm up against. Um, and um, something that I have to grapple with and something the whole court, court system has to grapple with across the board. Thank you, Judge Krupp. Would anyone else like to share their thoughts? before we move to breakout rooms. Um, I'll just say it was not, it, it, it was not surprising um, to, to me either. The, you know, I've been practicing in this state for some years before coming on the bench. So it's um, some of the experiences that people had, I was familiar with, I've seen it, I've experienced it. Um, I've experienced it as a practitioner, but I've experienced it as a judge. Um, you know, I've certainly had people tell me I can't park in the judge's spot, um, or I can't come in the door or the elevator for judges, or um, 
you know, some type of um, interaction in which, because they did not view me as looking like a judge, uh, they just assumed I was who, who knows who. And that I've experienced over the years, whether I was practicing or not, when I was practicing, uh, I would routine, I, I had memorized my bar number I think it's 630-876 because I always had to prove that I was the counsel um, on the matter. And I got tired of, you know, having to show the card and not know, you know, I just memorized the number and uh, it, it was a pretty st sad statement that that had to be the case. And, and like other um, industries, I don't think it really matters sort of how you ascend or how high up supposedly uh, you go. This, the types of um, experiences people reported are common. They've, it's been happening for years. This is a culture change. So, you know, Judge Krupp mentioned uh, committee creation, programming, outreach. We certainly have done a lot more of that. We, we, started doing that um, with the murder of George Floyd, uh, much more in earnest, like I think every place uh, started doing a lot more introspection and, and work on these issues. And it just continued um, with that report and others that have provided us some data for Massachusetts specifically. And I think here where it's, it's harder to convince people here uh, to some degree that there's any issue because we're blue, we're liberal, we're progressive, we're Northern, we're, we're all the things that people, you know, take on as a, a banner of pride to say, there's no way we're racist or sexist or, or biased in any ways up here. That's the stuff that happens in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and Florida. We don't do that around here. Well, actually we do do that around here. Um, and the data isn't that different in terms of um, the treatment of people and disparities and outcomes. So I think that the change that we would all like to see, like Judge Krupp said, is, is, a, is a, a lot of work. Uh, it's, a, it's definitely a work in progress and it, it will happen over years. Just like any culture change, you know, a law firm doesn't change overnight. Um, neither does a court. And I am excited to be alive and participating at this time where we're kind of dealing with these issues in earnest. And it's not just something, oh, that's just Fryson over there talking about race and bias again. Well, now we're all talking about race and bias um, of, of all sorts and not just race. And I'm, I'm, I'm just happy to uh, be doing the work with the court and, and with you all to, to make the changes. You know, we, we have to make those changes like one person at a time, uh, one court experience at a time and one case at a time. And it, it, it's not perfect. It's not gonna be perfect before I retire, but it'll be better. It'll be better. Maybe just a 20 second anecdote. When I, when I uh, started my law firm's diversity committee 20 years ago, uh, we hired a consultant. And one of the first things she said to me was, 
you have to understand when it comes to diversity and inclusion on a scale of one to 10, Boston lawyers, and she meant, I believe, uh, white lawyers, are a bunch of fives who think they're all tens. Uh, and that that has that has stayed with me because it's I just think it's it it's so true and it's just a constant reminder to myself, you know that you know the, the first step in change is is understanding the reality of the situation. So and I think we are making progress, but uh, it's a it's a long haul and it's 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 counterproductive not to realize the extent of the obstacle. I'd just like to add just briefly that um, you know I was not surprised uh, by the report either. And I think the, the, the judges you have here and those that are on our, our committee um, certainly were not surprised by it. And uh, we've really, in addition to um, getting involved like we have here and having um, uh, judges as liaisons to each of the affinity bar associations is something that we've started and trying to start these discussions. But we're, you know, we've got a, a judge, uh, one of our judges, a, a white Irish guy from the Boston area, who every single week is sending out an email. Uh, and I, I couldn't imagine, I can't even make all of my Zoom meetings, as Judge Frizon can attest to this afternoon. And he's sending out a reading every week that deals with some different issue regarding race or discrimination. And it's amazing the work that he's been doing. But then we're getting those and then they're spurring discussions. One of those readings was about a judge somewhere in the Midwest, I think it was, that there was a, a, a young, uh, I think it was a young black kid being tried. And the courtroom just had all these portraits of white guys, all these old white guys. So he took them down. So we then started, well, what are our portraits? So everybody went around. So the Superior Court judges are running around and we're counting up the portraits and you know I'm in I was in New Bedford last week there was I think 15 old white guys um and none of the they were all older portraits the last one was from the 90s but still there was that's what all the portraits were and then when I was doing that I came across a superior court portrait from 19 I think it was 1984 where I think there were 61 or 62 judges on that portrait and there were four black male judges um there were a couple of women there were no black women and now here we are, how many years later? And we have 82 judges and we have two black judges. So we've not only gone down with the number, we've gone significantly down with the percentage because we had four out of 60 something back then. And now we've got two out of 82. So there's a lot of work to be done, but we're looking at what, I mean, when you're going down to looking at the portraits in the courtrooms, we're really trying to, to change the atmosphere. Um, uh, for the better. And, and part of what we're doing here is to something that I really want to do is help increase the number of uh, judges uh, and add the diversity to the Superior Court and when all the courts, but uh, in particular, the Superior Court where we are. So 